Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. We are so excited to have Nicholas Maggio on the Film Situation Podcast. Thanks for joining us, Nicholas. Thanks for having me, man. Love it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, the, the super quick version is born in Louisiana, raised in Bakersfield, California, which is out in the desert. Came to LA when I was 20, went to design school, dabbled with a few careers here and there, quit my job to be a writer, ended up going into, while writing, ended up going into photography and commercial directing, doing that still while writing. And then I just finally got a script made. And that's, that's basically the, the long and short of it. Nice. And your feature film is called Mobland and it stars John Travolta, Ashley Benson, Kevin Dillon, Shiloh Fernandez, and Stephen Dorff. That's it. <laughs> Stacked cast. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. What was the inception? First of all, tell us a little bit about what the film is about for the audience members that are not. Yeah, yeah sure. It's, uh, yeah. it's a classic kind of Southern Gothic neo-noir, what I set out to make. Very linear, very simple, very straightforward. It's a everyday guy down on his luck, hard on, hard on cash, and gets talked into robbing a pain clinic to maybe raise a little money and gets in over his head. Some people come after him. That's the basic version. The non-sexy version. I, I like it. And I, I like the fact that you depicted crime almost as a working class sort of endeavor, because a lot of times that's how it actually, there's a, many films that glamorize it. And I feel like you showed it in more of a reality-based kind of way. And and it makes you wonder. It, it definitely is thought-provoking because certainly it makes you wonder how many times somebody does just get pulled in to the wrong situation that just completely fucks up their life. I always say, if you wanted to fuck up your life, you could do it in less than five minutes flat. To build a good life <laughs> takes so long, but to ruin for it all, sure. you do it almost instantly. No, for sure. And I, and I wanted this to be... I wanted it, it to be not just believable, but relatable. The crime is not this huge uh, heist. It's something that could uh, happen more or less overnight. It's very simple. It's a little haphazard, and that comes to, that's definitely shown in the film. It's just something that uh, you can see this shit happening and, and the fallout happening as well. Absolutely. And how did you get this thing made, man? What was the story about <laughs> that happening? You have so many stars in the film. Yeah. It's incredible for your first feature film. No, for sure. And I'll be quick, but I sent the script to a producer as a friend of a friend of a friend. He read it. He liked it. He was like, yeah, let's do this. He had done some. He did the last few Bruce Willis movies that he did before he retired. He's done these. Um, I think I know? heard of that guy. I think I've listened to him on a podcast before. Maybe the director's Edward Drake. He's the one who's done the, the last few, and he's worked with Corey Large. So Corey's the producer. He does these kind of shoot 'em up crime action films that are entertaining. They're fun to watch. They're, they have a fan base, and they serve their purpose extremely well. And I got the script to him. I knew that there was a, a model, and some people call it the geezer teaser, right? It's this model of film where you get Mel Gibson for four days, you get Bruce Willis for three days, they star in the film and you you work a film around them. I knew that this was a viable model and I knew it was a viable model that I could take it and do something different. I thought I could do a really classic neo-noir with it if I had a star for five days. And I knew that the producer had done these. So I approached him with this script and I said, look, this is 
I think if we can get someone to play Bodhi to play the sheriff, I think we can figure this out. We can do it and we can make it make sense and not make it feel like a film where maybe a star just comes in and out every once in a while. And no, actually, I got to say there was more screen time. There's because there's so many movies that they're like starring John Travolta and he's in it for two minutes. But there was actually a lot more screen time from John Travolta than I was expecting before I watched the film. Yeah. And that's a contractually he had to be in a certain amount and all of that. But I wrote the script with an understanding of that model and I thought I could do it or I knew I could do it in a way that I could still be true to the story and do an honest storytelling, but still playing into that model of the, of the a star for five days, if you will. And so that's how that's how it came out. He liked it. He got it to Stephen Dorff first. Dorff loved it. He called me. He's in. And then he got it to Travolta. Travolta loved it. And from then it was just, we just packed in the cast after that. Oh, that's awesome, man. And Steve yeah, so, was great in it. I really look, I'm biased. I think it's one of his best roles ever. I think he's just so fucking good in it. And it's because he loved the script. He loved the role and he really dove in and just committed. Same with Travolta. He really loved it as well. And I think it shows that he didn't phone it in at all. And then once we got funny stories, Luke Wilson was actually attached to it. And about 10 days before principal, he fell out. He just said he was burnt out. He couldn't do it. So I moved some pieces around. Kevin Dillon said yes to it. And then he stepped in his tray, which was fucking amazing. Shiloh, I had always had him in mind, even when I was writing it. And then actually I had known personally, texted it to her. She called me. She's like, I'm in, let's do it. And it just stars aligned and we got it to happen. That's amazing, man. Yeah, it's I'm extremely lucky. I'm not going to say it's I think I had a decent script and it's something that people thought would be fun to be a part of. But as a first time filmmaker, getting that cast, I just got extremely lucky. It's all there is to it. And how many shooting days was it? That is a grand total of 11. I think I read that somewhere. And that's <laughs> that blows my mind. I don't know. I'm like currently in production <laughs> a short film that's more days than that. It's shocking, man. It's really, it's borderline reckless. And it was one of those things where it was like, I come from the commercial world and I've done really insane schedules and shoot days. So they're like, here's the budget. It's a shoestring budget. You have John Travolta, all this, but this is not a big budget movie. This is a shoestring independent film in every sense of the word that just happens to have some names in it who got paid to do it. And the money went to cast. It went to the tube off the line. And I just had to fully commit myself and call in every fucking favor man imaginable. That's usually the case in independent film. Oh, dude, you um, have no idea. It was every favor. It was wild. But yeah, 11 days. That is unbelievable, man. What kind of... Was it like every day was like a 18 hour day? <laughs> no, dude, we were on 12 hour days. We went into OT a couple of times, but I had producers breathing down my neck, make your days, don't go over. So you've seen the film. So yeah. from the time the Buick parks and they go into the pill clinic to the time they go out of the back door, I shot that entire sequence. Everything on screen, I shot it in 48 minutes. Wow. And it was just, I, it's because I had to, it's because I had to make the day. It's because it was, there was just no way to do this without doing it on this time frame, And it's something I knew I could do. And I just committed myself to it. So it was wild, man. It was wild. And I had the support of the casting crew as well. So thank God. I see that the DP is Nick Matthews. Had you yeah. worked with him before? 
Yeah, we did a few commercials together, so we really understood each other. We both come from uh, a love of the genre, but then also a love for natural and available light. We love handheld. We love spherical lenses. We love zoom lenses. We just said, fuck it, we're going to lean into all of that, and that's how we're going to get this film done, and we're going to do it stylistically. Nice. Yeah. And what was, what were just some of the, what, how big was your crew really? I've had commercial photo shoots twice the size. It was just, we barely had enough to get everything bare minimum. And that's just, again, that's the way it was. We were dealing with an extremely low below the line budget. Uh, Sometimes so I think just, it's better working with a small crew, honestly. It was, it, it's good and bad, right? I think we walk this line between independent filmmaking and having the cast and needing the support for that cast and having a distribution involved early on. So we walk this line between oftentimes on a short film, you can call them favors and you get these people who you're surrounded by that are so passionate and they're there for you. And they, they're there to just do everything to get a great product. When we're in out of Atlanta, Georgia filming, we don't get that. It's still a union. It's still people who are there to make their, make their rent and it's uh, you got people who didn't read the script who didn't care they're there to get the job done it was good and bad it was it was great that it was a small crew so we all got to be a little tight and i got to win some people over maybe but it was also uh difficult because it wasn't always coming from a place of like art and passion first yeah i know exactly what you're talking about i i know what you mean and everyone busted their asses. I'm not going to say they didn't. And I think by the end of it, we were all like fairly tight. But it's, it's still a job for a lot of people. And I got to respect that. For sure. Was, did you get, how was it working with John Travolta? It was great, man. It's, it's, the guy's a movie star. And the guy's been a bona fide movie star for decades. Because of the schedule, I knew I wasn't going to be directing in the traditional sense, working with the actor hands-on during the shoot day. It just, we didn't have time. So a lot of the heavy lifting that I tried to do beforehand, which was text messages, phone calls, photos, everything. So John and I talked a lot before about the character, about what he wanted to do with it, about what I needed, you know, everything. So the, the day of, I created a space for him to step foot on set and just be there and deliver. He came fully prepared. I don't, I know that he never had sides on set. I don't know if he ever called for a line. He just knew every single line. We would go through blocking maybe once, and he would hit every mark every time. The guy's just such a professional. And all the cast, for that matter. But John was just, he was there to get the job done, and he was passionate about it, and thank God. So he was, I don't have any complaints. He was awesome. The guy's a movie star. Had he, wor had he worked with, I know he's done so many independent films, but... Yeah, especially the last few years. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. A guy like that has done the full gamut, right? From the biggest sort of blockbusters to the smallest indie films. He's, uh, we had a couple conversations when he was in his 40s, which was what, late 90s. He was the highest paid actor in the world. The guy was a massive mega movie star, Michael Faceoff during those years. And so he's seen absolutely every type of set. And then he's also, like you just said, he's done some of the independents, especially as he's getting further along in his career. He's doing some of the smaller ones as well. But yeah, I think... Uh, by the way, shout out. To, I'm glad you mentioned Face Off. Shout out to our friend David Permit, who's the producer of the movie Face Off. That was like his baby. He was on the podcast. If you haven't listened to that episode, I 
highly what recommend. a great anyone who's even remotely close to our age that film is that's just a it's a cinematic a, masterpiece <laughs> like if nobody nobody can talk shit that is such a great perfect film for in, in every way whether it's the campy angle that you can watch it through or just a really solid action film of the time and i watched it not too long ago and it still holds up and i will back that film till i die oh yeah absolutely that movie yeah, it's surprising how, or maybe not surprising, how often that movie comes up in conversations. It's one of those, there's probably 40 or 50 films that shaped us as far as somebody who's in my early 40s. It's, that is absolutely one of them, whether it be Die Hard or Face Off is one of the most iconic, for sure. Yeah, I asked David on the podcast what it was like pitching that movie to studios because... Jesus. <laughs> Only the 90s could give birth to Face Off. Like, you cannot make that film today. There's That's just true. No yeah, not on, the, not on that kind of budget. No way. No, oh, jeez. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> the equivalent of probably an Avengers film today? Like, it's wild. Yeah. So I guess, what, what were some of the biggest challenges when you were making this film? independent filmmaking is the whole Everything. thing? Everything? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I expected to hear because... I mentor film students and mm -hmm. I, I teach them how really filmmaking itself is, is all about problem solving. It's Oh, I, I, I said that directing, it's a few things. Number one, it's being very bad at things and recognizing that talent in other people and hiring them. It is constant cost benefit analysis and an implement an implementation of the, the results of the cost benefit and then it's manipulation. And it's not just manipulation of people, it's egos, personalities, time, space. It is a manipulation of absolutely everything. And it's those things constantly. When you're on a set and you have 16 pages to get done in one day and you your producer wasn't able to get you ITC to shut down the road, but you're filming a car chase scene and then you have... Uh, a Coke machine that fell through, a plate glass window. So that has to get cleaned up. Constantly, I was doing cost benefits saying, okay, if I cut this, I'll do this. I'll move this to here. I'll do that. All while taking into account all the heads of the departments, the actors, all of their needs, all the questions need to be answered lightning fast. It's absolutely a mind fuck when you're in it. And I feel like I was running on pure adrenaline and, you know, instinct and hopefully some taste level. <laughs> you pulled it off, man. It's incredible. Did By something. the way, yeah. I know you uh, came out of the hardcore scene, so we have to talk music for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, the, it's... the New York hardcore scene in New York City, CBGBs and which high wetlands and all the, all the places we... All the places we wanted to go, being on the West Coast, at the... You guys had the birth of really hardcore with especially the new york scene whether it be gorilla biscuit civ youth of today and then oh, we man. had oh god i could go on and on and then upstate and then all the way into connecticut and you guys had such great east coast and then we had we had a great punk rock scene but then we also had the kind of we were, had a really great new school hardcore early 2000s run where we got the a lot of the the, that the band terror hardcore. they were from california right they're from LA. We got yeah. Throwdown, Adamantium, 18 Visions, Bleeding Through, all of those early 2000s, really heavy, hardcore bands that we got to have out of here. But yeah, man, I came up late 90s, early 2000s was when I was going to shows five times a week, trying to see everything all up and down the coast and hardcore. It's funny because I think people who understand the hardcore scene and the punk rock scene, it's incredibly DIY. 
is incredibly empathetic. It's incredibly communal. And I think more so than a lot of other genres of music. Absolutely. So I think what is a lot of people who come out of that going into creative fields and going to it's we rely on a lot of the stuff that we learned coming up in those genres, whether it's letting bands crash on your sofa, touring bands, or whether it's just the tenacity of uh, needing to support the independent bands and driving six hours to go see them in San Francisco the next night to support the East Coast band. It's, it's funny because I think that everything I learned and appreciated about the hardcore scene really comes into play especially in 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 filmmaking and the actual like the, the actual making of the film not just the the taste or the the music choices i think about i'm glad you said it really well and that's something i've thought about a lot like if it wasn't for me being in that scene and that just that whole diy sort of mentality i don't think i would have become a filmmaker because i would have yeah. i thought before that i come from like an albanian immigrant household mm -hmm. i'm first generation american when I was much younger, I was always into film, but at some point I thought, hey, it just seems like a pipe dream. It seems like you have to be born into that, come from that Hollywood sort of lifestyle already. Sure. And there's a little bit of that too, but the DIY kind of thing just was really, it just empowering. It's, hey, you don't need to wait for somebody to call you, just go and make it happen, oh, you know? Go do it, book your own show, make your own flyer go to the, the venue the week before and hand them out. It's definitely, especially in independent filmmaking, it's got so many um, shades of that, of again, everything that we learned and appreciated and loved about the hardcore scene, for sure. Um, and the support, that's such a huge part of it. We love supporting the bands, the hardcore, the community of it, the appreciation of both the crowds and the bands. It's such a thing that, like I said, it's an empathetic scene. And I think oh, man, that's so true. That's so true. Like I was going to see your movie in Times Square and, and I don't even know you in, up until <laughs> now, but I was like, oh, this is so cool to see another indie filmmaker like making it happen. And it's playing in multiple yeah, cities. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is dope, man. Like I felt empathetically happy for Absolutely. you. And I'm like, this is it's really exciting. Yeah. As a competitive space as it is and as cutthroat and gatekept as filmmaking is. I love meeting other filmmakers. I love supporting. I don't give a fuck. I will get on IMDb and you get a 10 out of 10 and an absolute five, whatever, on Rotten Tomatoes. Let's, we're here to support each other. And anyone who doesn't do that is fuck off. I, I don't have time for That's it. It's small time thinking. Like there's people that, man, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that don't do that. But I think that's like a really small sort of way of thinking. Sure, absolutely it is. But uh, yeah, I love it. What's next on the agenda for you? Are you going to keep Oof. going? Do you have your next feature? Yeah, man. I out? have, I got another script that I absolutely love. I wrote it actually before Mobland, which is strictly between us, not between your entire audience. I absolutely hate the name Mobland. I, it's, it was never written as Mobland. It wasn't shot as Mobland. The title was changed before it came out. It was originally, it was shot as American Metal. So that was the that was the title we had. Uh, oh, American Metal? Interesting. Yeah. Even more interesting, you'll love this. This is a funny. So every hardcore kid, whether you were in a band or not, has a band name of a fictitious band that they would have been in. Every oh, absolutely. I have one yeah. shot deal. Exactly. Every that single was, that was my fictitious name, one shot deal. <laughs> so funny enough, we're on set. This is years ago, and I'm talking to this kid from Boston. And we were talking about that. And he was like, oh, yeah, I have mine. And he tells me the name. And I was like, 
fuck, that's the hardest name I've ever heard in my life. So the original script that I wrote, the title of it on it was his fictitious band name, which was Blood on the Porch, <laughs> which is still I like the that. hardest <laughs> name ever. So yeah, that, that was the original good. title, and I had to change it before we went after actors because the producer was like, change the fucking title. Everyone's going to think it's a horror movie and no one will read it. So it got changed from Blood on the Porch to American Metal, and then it was settled on Mobland. So Mobland is much, but still hard for me to call that because I don't love that name, and it's not about the mob, but you know what? We're here. Because they're like in a rural part of America, and it's... Look, you saw the film. It's There's a slight mob element in order to get us to the real story, which is about a relationship between two people, and then the peripheral characters and the things that happen to them. That's basically the extent of the mob. What, what I like what you did is, all right, so my philosophy about films is on one level, they should be entertaining. Like sure, sure. they should, you should be able to watch yeah, it. And it's a business. But on repeated watchings, or if you think about it later on, there should also be, ideally the good films have more than it's just entertaining. It's, there's also it's thought provoking. And then there's things going on. Imagine a film like the shining, right? Like yeah. Stanley Kubrick's the shining. It's an entertaining horror film, but on repeated watchings, you're like, man, there's so much going on in this film. It's sure. incredible. And I thought your film actually asked some really thought provoking questions. And there was some real character driven stuff like with Stephen Dorff's character and certainly with Shiloh Fernandez's character and with all the characters, it was, it yeah, was I, pretty good. I set out to, make a film that didn't have clear protagonists and antagonists. I wanted to walk the line. We've all kind of been interested in that, at least myself, since maybe The Sopranos, when a good guy's a bad guy's a good guy. So I've always loved this idea. So I really just wanted there to be no lines between good and bad throughout the entire film. Everybody does horrible shit. Everybody does good things. And we try to figure this world out together. So that's what... There, there is a, that's a, uh, one of the major themes. And I think you can take it at surface level if you just watch the film once. And I think you can dive in a little bit more. On, on top of that, just to say about things, finding things as you watch it again, or and I, and I hope you do, but there are a ton of Easter eggs in there throughout the film. And it's mostly just my love letter to the genre. But there's a lot of little subtle things, whether it's thematic or whether it's just blatant homages to other films. There's a few in there that you can pick up on. What are some of your favorite films? We're going to we're going to talk about two of your favorite movie scenes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to get to that portion in a bit, but growing I mean, up my, in the movies, were you like going to the movies all the time? Were you a big fan of cinema? So, I credit 13 years old is when I watched Reservoir Dogs in the basement of my friend's um, house, and that's when I understood that film could be something different than uh Rad and Goonies and E.T. and all the other great movies we grew up with, but I didn't know that it could be that. I didn't know it could be that. That was the game-changing film for yeah. me. Too, man. That, I mean, that, was way, you know what's funny? I bought the script back in the day. People would actually, yeah. now you can oh, print a script for free. But like, sure. I was in a oh, record store. On the store. side of the street or something. I was actually yeah. in a record store when I was 14 years old, and I bought that script for, I think, $15. Yeah which would be it's like almost $40 with today. Yeah, for sure. But, but like I bought that script for 15 bucks and I read it when I was 14. It, and it was just, it blew me away. I was it was like, mind-blowing. Oh, I, I, yeah. 
it's for, especially for us because like i said i was 13 when i watched i think it came out when i was 12 so we're about the same age and it was like we were the perfect age for that i i had already loved movies i just didn't know that i could love movies like that because i didn't know they existed and so once that happened i was just obsessed with uh, going to suncoast in the mall and, and looking for VHS tapes and trying I to I think find... Suncoast is where I bought the VHS tape. For yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> and I was just obsessed with that. So that's for sure the movie that, that changed everything for me. And then, God, we were so lucky to grow up in the late 90s when it was just the renaissance of independent film and the renaissance of film in general. And so I think we were blessed to have some really epic films. As far as like films that I love or even my top three, Thin Red Line, That'll always go down as a game. And again, it was when I watched, I was like, oh, I didn't know a film could be that. And so it it changed again. A Bittersweet Life, Korean film, one of all-time best. That's one of my favorites. And then Breakfast Club. I watch it every year on my birthday. It's a fucking perfect film. It's a great film. It's in the top three. I'm a John, big John Hughes fan. Huge. I'm a massive John Hughes fan. Huge. Bear's Blue's Day Off is a film that it's definitely in my top three favorite films. Yeah. It's what I talk Perfect. about on the podcast quite a bit. I love it. I love it. Shout out to Jess Schur, who she was just on the podcast. She wanted to talk about that was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The, a scene from Oh man, Ferris was in the scenes that she wanted to talk about. God. Ferris Bueller's Day Off when they're in the uh, the museum is like one of my favorites. It's like I, I just I love that's it. also a film that's they do some unexpected thing like Cam's. Uh, existential crisis for that it's, to- it's john hughes it's like he he walked this line he was a true coming of age storyteller and the fact that he can make you laugh and then make you feel okay to cry and like it, he nobody has been able to do it since i truly don't i was thinking before. about that the other day really like he was next level and so far ahead of his time oh and it was and, and nobody does coming of age anymore as of the late 90s it became American Pie was our coming of age films, which is great and they're funny, but it became all comedy and you lost the heart and soul. Yeah, there's nothing like Stand By Me that's coming out right now. Or oh, and, yeah. and whether it's Pretty in Pink or just all the 80s movies, whether it was John Hughes or not, so many of them. Perks of Being a Wallflower is up there as far as the last 15 years or something who did one similar, but... I just don't think anyone's touching John Hughes for a long time, as far as that's concerned. I completely agree, man. Before we move on to that portion of the podcast, were there are there any kind of stories behind the scenes kind of things that you could share on set that were interesting or just so many? I mean, stuff happened every single day that was unexpected or a hurdle or something impossible, whether it was a car not working or whether it was um like i said itc we, we didn't get police if you watch the film the entire car chase basically happens in a parking lot for fucking crying out loud because it's like just every day there was something that uh, went wrong or i couldn't get or so there's so many things and so many funny and great things too but it was oh god i to a funny thing that i'll tell and it's it just makes me look like an awful director which i'm okay with is is people ask about John Travolta and about the decisions he made on set and everything. And one of my favorites was I'm watching him and you'll remember the scene. It's when we basically first meet him. He's in the garage after the hunting scene and uh, the little girl comes running in and he gets down on a knee and he starts talking to her. And so when I'm watching that, when I'm on set, that wasn't written in for him to do that. He was just going to deliver his lines to her a little bit more uh, matter of fact. 
and I'm in the monitor, got my cans on, I'm watching, and, and John Travolta does this big this bow to her, and he gets down on a knee. And I watch him like, whoa, chill the fuck out, John Travolta. Can't wait to cut that. Whoa. And that <laughs> motherfucking, that shit made it into the final. And it just goes to show that, like, he was making these really small decisions that he knew the character so well and at times better than I did. I think I'm a good director because I gave him the space to do that. I think I'm uh, a director who's definitely learning and understanding that John Travolta knows more about film than I do at this point because he would make these decisions where in the moment I was like, wrong decision, John. And then in post, <laughs> I was like, holy fuck, that was the right decision. <laughs> Good for him. And I'm glad I let that happen. So after it happened and you weren't sure about it, were you, did you give some sort of direction? That was great, John. Could we try one more for safety where it's more on the page? Or like, how did you do, like, how did you tackle that? We would have these conversations and very briefly because it was, time was not on our side. Yeah. But yeah. It was like, it was definitely like, and I think we did do a few different versions. And I'm like, okay, let's try this. We get through it faster. And maybe it's not even, I would give these small directions as far as pacing or something but that's mostly it to try to just make sure I had at least enough to work with and, and coverage wise but there was two or three times when that happened and a lot of really little subtle things too he was he would want to change a line and he was he didn't like to he didn't want to change a lot he really liked the script but it was like hey I think it should just be this word instead of these four words and I'm like mm, I wrote those four words I know they're good okay let's try it and in the end, he was right. I liked it better and it fit the pacing of the film. And what am I going to do? It's John Travolta. He's a movie star and he was right. Yeah. And I think that's okay to say that it was a learning experience. I'm still learning. I think every director, every writer, everyone involved is still learning no matter how, where they are in their careers. And I'm okay with that. Absolutely. That's, I, I always look at filmmaking like it's a lifetime of learning. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. Right? Kung Fu, right? <laughs> I hope so. And I like the dynamic with Kevin Dillon's character being like the East <laughs> guy and just like, I, I feel like that made sense of he's from New York and you could tell he has like a past, yeah, checkered yeah. past. Yeah, we, Kevin, we just leaned into, you You can't see Kevin Dillon and not think Entourage. I don't know anyone who doesn't just That's immediately true. go to Entourage as opposed to maybe Platoon or something even more iconic. But so many people think Entourage. And so early I on, do as well. I do for yeah. sure. And it, which is great because it's such a great role. But early on, we were like, I said, fuck it. Let's lean into that. Let's lean into the fact that the audience is going to be like, oh, shit. I love that guy. It's it's drama. They, they want to be on his team. So I said, let's lean into that. And let's make that a reason why he can get away with some of the things he does. Because he's already going to be loved. Whereas Dorf, the second you see him, you fucking hate him. But he's also got a likability for sure in the film. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's because of the character and that's the way he played it. And, and we had to work up to that. But the first time Travolta, I'm sorry, Dorf, he's knocking some guy's fucking face off. With oh, yeah. He's it's holy shit. And the first time Dylan, he's being lovable and cracking jokes. So we wanted to, I wanted to use that. Would it be a spoiler alert to say Kevin Dillon's character might be more of a psychopath than Stephen Dorff's character? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah for, for real, right? And again, that's what I, thematically, what I kept going back to is I didn't want there to be good guys or bad guys. Everyone's doomed to some degree. 
Yeah, no, I actually liked where it went. I'm not going to say too much because obviously I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I liked that there was some unexpected, for sure, there were some unexpected turns. I'm like, oh, I actually would not have seen that coming. And usually in this sort of trope, you could always see what's coming. And I know I that way. And I wanted, I was not setting out to redefine the genre. I wasn't, I wanted to be a very simple story. And I just wanted there to be enough to where I want to walk the line really and and of people saying, oh, I, I've seen this before. It's a robbery gone bad. And it's, yeah, that's what it is. I didn't want to rewrite anything. I wanted to lean into that. But at the same time, I wanted to give you just enough to where you're like, oh, shit. Okay. I don't know if I've ever seen it quite like that. That's fun. And that's I all think- I was doing. My, I'm, I don't know, I can't speak for your philosophy, but my philosophy is, I don't think a film, I don't think the great films really hinge on plot. And I'm not saying plot's not important, but usually characters, like good characters supersede what's going on in the plot. Yeah, I, for me, it's, it's, it's plot holes. If there are too many plot holes that I can't get past, and I can get past a decent amount, if there's too many things that I can't buy that the film is selling, then you'll lose me. But as far as like plot, yeah, I need to get through it. But for me, I'm character driven as well. And there is a plot here and I, there are not, there's no holes. I won't say there's no holes, but I think it's gonna be hard to pick it apart because it is so simple. I would be, I would love for someone to email me and tell me a whole- No, you had, you, I feel like you answered a lot of, as the audience, once yeah. you start to like form questions, wait, hey, and then as the filmmaker, if you answer those questions right away, I feel oh, like that's what you were doing. Yeah, it wasn't like I said, I can buy a lot. I love the I love the interview with Ben Affleck talking about asking Michael Bay, wouldn't it be easier to teach astronauts how to drill rather than teach drillers how to be astronauts? And Michael Bay said, Ben, shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's a fucking movie and i love that because i'm i, yeah, I subscribe to that school of thought it's yeah absolutely just give me enough to buy it and i'm sold i don't need a ton but uh, yeah i think i think i'll blame I mean, for sure it's a character driven piece 100 percent. yeah no it was good I, I found i found myself emotionally invested in the character yeah so yeah I'm for sure be, you pulled that off and and uh, yeah i thought shiloh fernandez did did some so good. Cool He's stuff. so good. His best role for sure. Heaven Dwarf. I'll, I'll say it. I'm you know, I, I don't know if I'm familiar with his other films, but yeah, he certainly, I thought he did great. He's so good. I, I watched a couple movies he was in when we had started talking and I saw just enough. Oh, okay, you're there. You got it. And I had known him from Evil Dead from season one of Euphoria. He's got a, a couple episodes and I knew his face, but I watched a couple films. I was like, oh, you're an actor. You're actually... You're not just like this super rugged, handsome face. You're actually an actor and you can do this. Um, yeah, he really, I thought he inhabited that character in a really believable way. Like to me, oh, yeah. that guy. I, I agree. He acted his ass off. He truly did. Well, and yeah, I thought that was cool too, that he was working on cars and it was really like the whole working class, then approaching crime aspect. I'm, like I'm from the Bronx. So yeah, I grew up around, I don't want to say I grew up around a lot of crime, but I grew up in a, my dad had a business on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, which was Little Italy. Like that was, yeah. again, like that was mob land for real. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> You're not far enough removed for it that you don't understand it. I understand it very well. Yeah, exactly. And also understand it not to glamorize it too. Yeah, for sure. I remember I had a former film student that this kid glamorized the mob in a way where 
I, I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to bring you to a drive in the Bronx. And then I brought him to these different places. I was like, you see that place over there? Like, check that place. That's like an actual hangout. He was like, yeah. oh, it is. Like, and it was so different than I think what he would have imagined. It was this really, you know, rundown looking sort of spot. And he's, oh, okay. That's funny. That's funny. And just different things like that. But yeah, really great job on the film, man. And I'm excited to see what else is in the pipeline certainly yeah dude i got one cooking so hopefully we'll hopefully i'll get it together so i guess now we're gonna move to the second portion of the podcast where i ask each guest to share what are two of their favorite movie scenes from any films and nicholas has already mentioned the breakfast club that you watch yep. every year on your birthday yep yep it's pretty cool it's a good one it's a great one and it holds up so well so let's yeah. talk Breakfast Club and the uh, scene that uh, is in question. Yeah, the scene, it's the staircase scene. And it's... You know what? We should give some content. To somebody that's never seen The Breakfast Club, that's one of those things. Maybe like very... Blasphemy. But yeah, very few listeners of this podcast probably have not seen The Breakfast Club. Yeah, but yeah. There might be some younger cats out there that haven't gotten around to it yet. 1980s, it's a Saturday morning and some kids from very different walks of life uh, come together in a library to serve detention um, for an afternoon. Mm -hmm. And it's about their relationship with why they're there, their families, themselves, and each other. And it's about how they discover not only who they are, but who they are in relationship to each other, who each other, who they are. What am I trying to say? Yeah, that's it. It's it's coming of age, but not only that, it's coming of age within 10 hours, a span of eight hours or something that, that the film takes place on. On Saturday afternoon. And that's why I love it so much. But it's a very simple, confined, uh, coming of age drama comedy. A very simple movie. And it's so beautiful because of that. Would The Breakfast Club be able to be made today? Like, it would be so different, right? Like, I, I think first of all, these a, kids would just be on their cell phones the whole time. As a tiny independent, sure, maybe. But I just don't think... Would it be yeah. the same thing? Even if, never mind, like, the budget and... If it actually got greenlit, would it be the same? Would it have the same resonance? Would it be like the same sort of thing? Could it? I think that the 80s were something special. You were coming out of, you didn't have the social media. You didn't have the, the computers. We didn't have all that. So you had this time where it was like the world was changing so fast and everyone was trying to find their place in it, whether it was countries finding their place in this new world, our parents or kids or technology, everyone was trying to figure it out. And I think there was a lot of, a lot of unknowns in the eighties. And so I don't think that and you couldn't look to social media and the internet to figure out who you were and to find people like you. As far as the eighties and, and what Breakfast Clubs does so brilliantly is this idea of figuring out who you are based off of other people and based off your relationship. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it can be done at all uh, in the same way. Not only with the budget, those were massive actors at the time, but you, I just don't think you can tell that story. Not the same way. It just wouldn't work. You could tell well, it. When, yeah, I just, yeah, I don't think it would be the same. I just don't think it would, like, it could have been made today. No, you know? and I don't think it would resonate the same. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we'll talk about the scene in question where yeah. they're all sitting around and... This is more than halfway through the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Where Molly Ringwald's character, Claire, is showing the rest of this group this trick that she does. Right. That she's able to put on lipstick 
by putting the lipstick like essentially like inside of her bra and then right yeah, yeah. putting it up to her lips like so without touching the lipstick she's able to apply her lipstick on right Emilio Estevez's and- character and is impressed and the other characters are impressed except for Judge Wright Reinhold yeah, yeah. Judge Reinhold's character yeah and. You know, what's so great about it, and that's the catalyst to get us into the scene, and the rest of the scene is what's so great about it is it starts with this innocuous thing where they're all talking about these things that they're good at. And Judge Reinhold's character starts ragging on her for, oh, this is what you're, this is all you're good for. And it turns into this, and it's the turning point of the film, and that's why I love it so much, is it turns into this very, very dark scene about how they see themselves and what's wrong with that. And how they see each other and what's wrong with that as well. So they're all flawed in viewing themselves in a like self-deprecating way, but also with each other. And I think through that and through this very fast scene where they all come out and say, oh, yeah, we are all fucked up and we are all just doing our best. And that's the moment where they all, all of a sudden see that they are in the same through their struggles of trying to stand out in a way. And I think it's just it's such a beautiful scene because... And it, it doesn't get enough credit. You look at the actors and you look at how finely they thread that needle in that scene. Nobody overacts. It's, you're just dancing on tables five minutes ago and you're in this scene that is so incredibly heavy and they all play it so naturally that maybe only actors like that could. And it's so incredibly fun to watch. And it's the it's the moment where you're going to cry in that film. If, if you do cry, it's going to be there because you're just John Hughes just set you up for it. He let yeah. you laugh, he let you dance, and now he's going to fuck you up. I know, when he talks about getting the carton of cigarettes for... Oh, yeah. Smoke them up, Johnny. <laughs> totally. Um, that hit me even as a young kid watching that movie, because he's a lot younger than the characters of the movie when I first saw it, actually, when I was really young. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I wish I could write a coming-of-age film. I always said that I'm going to try, and it'll probably suck, but I'll probably have to put some pretty heavy brutality or killings in it, but I don't know. But <laughs> I, I would love to at least try at some point. What's your favorite gangster film, I guess? Oh, God. Gangster film, is, is that Italian mob? Is that what is it? be anything, really. Any, I mean, I anything. Think Killing Him Softly is up there. That's I love that fucking film. Um, Goodfellas, how are you going to touch that? Bronx Tale. There's so many. Hill is so good. It's, it's literally it's, that neighborhood where my dad had the business. Where that yeah, yeah. There's so that. many great ones. And then mob, mob. Is that a militia or is that a group? It's I love out of the furnace. I love. It's there's just so many great neo noirs that I love so incredibly much. No Country for Old Men is a fucking mob movie in some way. So, oh, I love that movie. It's so good. Yeah, who doesn't? It's such a. It's just. If you don't love that, just get off this podcast. Yes, get off of it. We're not going to be friends anyway. (laughs) Okay, you mentioned Killing Them Softly. Same director as Andrew Dominic, who made the second scene that we're going to discuss is the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yep, definitely in the top 10. Every year, maybe it works itself lower and lower into my maybe top five. I think that film, everything about it is what I love about film. I love the pacing. I love a slow burn. I love a drama. I love hints of brutality juxtaposed with the most beautiful scenery and cinematography. It's, that's what I love about film so much. So I Deacon shot it. What the fuck are you going to say about Roger Deakins other than he's amazing? Okay. And so... Also, No Country for Old Men. The yeah. So you get 
arguably one of the more beautiful films he's done. And then you get maybe objectively the coolest, most beautiful scene in any film that he's ever done. And that's what I think the train robbery scene and in assassination. So I guess tell, tell those unfamiliar with the film and the scene, just give a little context. Yeah. It's Robert, I'm sorry, Robert Ford, uh, Jesse, and uh, is it Frank James? They're all waiting to, rob this train the train finally shows up it shows up and they rob the train that's literally all it is but it's how do you put so much drama and suspense into a train pulling up and roger deakins does it and he does it with light he does it with camera movement it's not an incredibly storytelling scene that you're not doing anything except getting the train to stop but it's those two and a half minutes of just a train pulling in that is so fucking beautifully shot and it's just a masterclass in cinematography. It's it, everything's so good about it. everything from wardrobe and the setting and the train and the sound design. God, when the train hits the hits the mounted camera and starts pushing in and turns into this beautiful one shot, it's just everything about it is perfect for me. It's just yeah, I think it's a little cliche almost where it's oh, what's your favorite scene? It's that one's going to be mentioned a lot, but it's just I can be surprised bummed. actually. No one has mentioned that yet. That's interesting. Yeah, it's just it's. I could be bummed out and put that three minutes on and be like, okay, that's cool. It's fun. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually first became familiar with this film because I attended a workshop with the editor. I guess it was there, there was mm. two editors on this film, but mm -hmm. Curtis Clayton. And so I had a chance to meet him and very cool showing scenes from this film. And it was just, it was incredible. Yeah, so. I was a I was an Angie Dominic fan pretty early. He did Chopper. That's what I mean, Chopper is what made me fall in love with him. And so I was waiting for this film. Was it 2004 or five? I was just waiting for it to come out. I was watching the trailer every day because the trailer's unreal. I just, I watch that film probably two or three times a year. I just, I absolutely adore it. I love Chopper. I yeah, love, so I love so that great. scene where he's sitting in prison with the guy and he's like, I bring you from tears to glory. And this is how you were, baby. <laughs> just <I can't>. like, <laughs> oh, sorry. Right there. Think, I lost uh, you for a sec. You froze up, man. I was just saying, you know, how great I, how great Dominic is and how much I love him and also how much I love a slow burn. And I think you get that when you see Bobland. It's a slow burn crime drama. I like a good slow burn. Yeah. I made a feature film. Yeah, it's, it's slow burn. I love it. I love marketing for Bobland is definitely touting it as a fast-paced, heart-pounding. And it's not. It is an absolute crime drama. And that's what I set up to make, and that's what it is. Nice. And where could people follow along with you? Like where, where uh, kind of check out? Yeah. I'm on Instagram. It's just my name, nicholasmaggio.com. Or I'm sorry, Nicholas Maggio, at Nicholas Maggio. I've been posting stuff. I, I have uh, a photography career. It's where I post some photos and everything as well, plus some personal stuff, whatever. But that's where I am now. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, that's pretty much it. Go see it in theaters. It's going to be in theaters for maybe another week or so, and then it's going to move to iTunes and then Hulu. Absolutely. So please support independent film and go watch Mobland in the theater. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would love that. And yeah. email me and tell me what you thought, and let's talk about fun shit. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. I'm Dude, gonna, thanks for having me. I love I'm gonna. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast.